She's back. Sedona Prince back with the women's basketball team as they extend their winning streak to three in a row. Plus, the men get a much-needed blowout win of Cincinnati over the weekend, and TCU baseball breaks out the brooms for the second weekend in a row, sweeping a ranked UCLA back to California. We're going to break it all down right now on this episode of Frogs Insider. Hello and welcome in to another episode of Frogs Insider. Jamie here alongside Melissa Trebwasser. As always, Melissa, it was a wild weekend in uh, TCU athletics. Like all weekend, it was just like game after game after game yeah. event after event. And it seems like TCU pretty much won every single one of them. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a banner weekend to say the least for the Horn Frogs and the fan base. It was. I I um, found myself like trying to plan out my Saturday because there was a basketball game for the men's team at two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Baseball was at four o'clock in the afternoon, and then the women's team played at six o'clock in the evening. And so I'm like in my head, I'm like, okay, well I know I'm going to be at baseball, and it's a small press box, so I'm going to go drop my stuff off there, then walk over to men's game for a little bit, and then hopefully baseball will be over in time to get back over to the women's game. And so I showed up at the baseball stadium at, like, noon, four hours before first pitch, and I walk wow. in the press box, and there are a couple, like, TCU marketing folks, some video folks in there. They're like, why are you here right now? And I was like, guys, I'm on that grind. I'm yeah. on the grind. I've got I've to stay stopping. on top, right? Never stop grinding. That's the that's the mantra. Um, but I, I dropped my stuff off there, walked over to basketball for a little bit, saw our good friend Colin Post, who was in town running the Cowtown Marathon. Shout um, out to Colin with the PR. Shout out to Colin for a personal record uh, running that Cowtown Marathon. Hyped for him uh, to do that. That's such a cool accomplishment. And um, yeah, watched some really good basketball, watched some incredibly good baseball, and unfortunately did not make it back over to see Sedona Prince's uh return to the court after 11 games played um, with a broken finger, but the ladies took care of business beating Houston 59 to 49. So that was uh, a nice little win there as well. I've I've had a couple of Saturdays that have seen me very much planted um, in front of a television or my phone for much of the day watching just consecutive hours of TCU athletics. And it's, it's been a really, and have not lost in either of those. I mean, that's two straight Saturdays where, Men's women's basketball have both yeah. won baseball as one. It's been a pretty pretty good run there for the Horn Frogs. And then beach volleyball also got a nice win on the road Saturday as well. Took down a ranked LSU along with a couple other opponents as well to go four and zero on the weekend. Pretty pretty yeah. sweet. Shout out to Hector Gutierrez and yeah. his squad. He's got those uh, those players absolutely at the peak of of the of the game, which is pretty dope. Um, yeah. Melissa, we're going to talk about a lot tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about. Football media availability, because we actually got to talk to some players last week. That was pretty cool. We're going to break down uh, the men and women's basketball games from this weekend. We're going to talk about TCU uh, sweeping UCLA. Uh, gonna, I'm really excited to dive into all of that. Um, but I got to start with something that happened on Twitter today where our our uh, overlords, I guess, for a, <laughs> a lack of a better phrase, over at Dave Campbell's Texas Football, um, if you know... If, if you're a first-time first listener, we are part of a Dave Campbell's Texas Football Republic of Football Network. Uh, you can find our podcast along with a podcast for every other D1 program in the state of Texas at Republic of Football. Wherever you search for your podcasts, you'll find you'll find all of our shows in one stream there. Um, but we uh, <laughs> there, there was a little bit of controversy in the network today because the Baylor podcast, of course it's the Baylor podcast, of right? Of course it's Baylor podcast. Um, titled their most recent podcast episode the same thing that all of these like porn bots on twitter are spamming people's replies with mm-hmm. and uh one of our that, okay i'm gonna i want to admit i didn't really know what was going on and now that makes sense why i didn't know that's it yeah that, I'm, I'm not gonna say that those are targeted ads but hey hey you, we don't <laughs> control what the bots do sure right i i i mean last year I was every single baseball game, uh, poor uh, TCU baseball admin, all the folks that run that Twitter account, 
were just getting their tweets spammed by the same little porn bot just over and over and over again. Uh, so I don't think that they have targeted victims. I think their reign of terror is L- wide sweeping. Listen, but- you know, is, is, is someone in marketing, you know, you know that if you start talking about something and then you're going to, I got one of my favorite stories to tell is I had a, a friend who's a little bit older than me, like maybe 10, 15 years older. And, and she was asking, she was like, I'm getting the weirdest ads on my Facebook. I was like, what, <laughs> what are these ads for friend? And she said, banana hammocks. Oh, did she? Uh... And, and we reminded her that your search <laughs> habits dictate the average. So I didn't go farther into the conversation. I'm not trying to insinuate anything here. I'm just saying. She had a Jason Whitlock moment. Yeah, I was I was not familiar with the, the between. And, and also, I think this is the Between Two Bears episode I'm on, which also is hilarious. I, they did bring me in this week to, to talk about Gary Patterson and, and some other, some basketball. We previewed the game and, and different things like that. So this is all, now that I know why this was such a problem, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm more... Um, I find it hilarious and delightful that it happened today. Well, Ishmael Johnson from DCTF tweeted, you're all fired at the Baylor uh, uh, Motley crew of the, of the between two bears podcast. I don't know. Yeah. That, uh, you know, so rest in peace. We might be looking for a new Baylor podcast. Yeah, this, so if you've got an one, opening, yeah, if you've got one, uh, hit up Ishmael Johnson over at Dave Campbell's Texas. Yeah. Football. But yes, <laughs> we are uh, the part of the Republic of football network. Uh, Dave Campbell's Texas football is a wonderful partner with us here at Brogs Insider. Uh, we are also sponsored uh, by Hell's Half Acre Stadium Goods and Homefield Apparel, of whom we will speak highly of later on in the episode. Love both of those companies. Love both of the people behind those companies. Uh, very excited to partner with them as well. But right now, right here, Melissa, we need to talk about Josh Hoover. Yeah. Because Josh Hoover was one of the guys that we got to talk to this week at Football Media Availability because... It's getting close. We're about a month away from spring ball picking up and getting rolling two months away from the spring game. Um, and obviously football can't just let ha- let basketball and baseball have all of the no, all of the attention and not. momentum. Got to get some football guys in there. So Josh Hoover, Nambiobi Azor, Dom Williams uh, were three guys that we got to talk to. JP Richardson was another guy that we got to talk to uh, in the middle of last week. And I say this not to overhype or oversell or over anything Josh Hoover heading into spring ball. But Josh Hoover does a very good Max Duggan impression in front Hmm. of a microphone. Hmm. And what I mean by that is he is always hesitant to take credit and always quick to credit others. He talked about accountability. He talked about leadership. He talked about responsibility and pulling in the right direction. And I was really impressed with how he carried himself in this presser. And I know what you might be listening to this and thinking, Jamie, it was a press availability in February. Like, who really cares? Well, I think it's important because we, when we get to talk to a lot of these kids and when you talk to as many of these players that we have talked to over the you know, decade plus that we've been doing this, you can kind of pick up on who's kind of a natural leader and who maybe mm-hmm. needs to really work at it. And every sense that I have gotten in my interactions with Josh Hoover, and I'm sure you feel the same way from when you've come into town, is that he has that kind of innate ability to get guys to listen and follow him. And he said everything right this week. He talked about being a leader. He talked about accountability, meaning that you have to have hard conversations with people sometimes. Um, and he talked about the work that he's done this offseason to be a better quarterback on the field as well. And I came away from that that uh, press availability very impressed with Josh Hoover. It sounded like he had grown even from this past fall, where he was also very well-spoken and, and uh, very thoughtful. Um, and I just thought it was really cool that they kind of rolled him out. I know that the last few years there's been quarterback co- competitions and someone's got to win the job, and it really does feel like they're trying to treat Josh Hoover as the incumbent moving into 2024, which he is. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if maybe there's going to be a diff- little bit of a different attitude about the quarterback position from TCU this upcoming year. I mean, I'll say a couple of things. Number one, if there, if Josh Hoover is not the guy, TCU football is in big trouble for 2024. 
Sure. Um, not not to speak poorly on Ken Seals, um, but I, I, you know, there's enough tape. Hey, he was playing at Vanderbilt. Like, we'll give him some grace here, there. But we know <laughs> who he is, right? Um, and then we also know what we've seen out of Josh Hoover in limited sample size. But he's played. He's put up some pretty impressive numbers against some good teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're if he's not the guy, and you're looking, you know, you're you're clamoring for the true freshman. I, you know, I think TCU's in a big big trouble. Um, so yeah, I think, I think he should be treated as the the starter. I think, and I think he also can handle that without, it's not going to lessen his work ethic. It's not going to lessen his effort. It's not going to lessen him going out there and trying to win the job, even if he knows he's already won it. So I don't, I don't worry about that whatsoever. The other thing I'll say, and I don't know if I ever told this story on the podcast, but I think I I might've dropped it in the chat is I think I was coming back to the Colorado game and I ended up sitting down at the, uh, at the gate next to the player of a walk-on who's from my area. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she was, she was talking about, she brought up Josh Hoover. And at that time, you know, he hadn't, he hadn't really played a snap and he, he wasn't a much of a known quantity on that team. And she said, yeah, I, you know, me and my son and everything I've heard from him is that he's really impressed with this Hoover kid and thinks he's the future at TCU and that he's going to be a guy. He came in, the walk-ins came into the summer. Josh spent time not only get, like introducing himself to every walk-on, but making sure he knew their names. He showed mm. up to every workout. He was he was doing extra reps with guys. He was working out with the walk-ons to make sure that they felt like they were a part of the team. And she said that her son was so impressed by that 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 a, a kid who's a quarterback and and you know has, has been in the program for a year was still making sure that every single person that showed up on that campus and was handed a a TCU football something felt like they were a part of that program um, and that yeah. that kind of spoke to his character and and she you know she is someone who was like I I really think that 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 kid's gonna be the guy at some point you know whether it's this season or next season so I think that that we all want him to be great. I don't think there's a TCU fan on the planet that doesn't want Josh Hoover to to be the kid we saw in the second half of a lot of games. I think there's still a lot of questions about what kind of quarterback he can be as the game in game out starter. Um, but I think he does all of the intangibles well. He does all the off the field stuff well, and he's clearly flashed the talent that could make him a really good quarterback in in the new look Big Twelve in the future. So I'm excited for him to go into the spring as QB1 to get the reps, to get the work with the first team, to continue to build the chemistry with a guy like JPR that you mentioned, uh, with Savion Williams, who seems so exceptionally bought in this offseason in a way that I don't know that we've really seen from him. Um, and I just hope to God that we have uh, the offensive line and the running game to to help him maximize his ability and talent. Yeah, those are the big questions. It it does uh, make you feel good, though, when you have a guy like John Paul Richardson step up to the mic right after Josh mm-hmm. Hoover uh, and sing his quarterback's praises. Mm-hmm. Um, Richardson spent a lot of time talking about two things. He talked about the comfortability of the offense in year two mm-hmm. under Kendall Bryles, um, which Hoover mentioned as well. He said this is the first spring that he doesn't in like three years where he doesn't have to learn a new offense yeah. and learn a new playbook. And I think that that might go a long way Huge to... Deal. Um, some continuity for this offense this season. And then Richardson talked a lot about how, uh, you know, he and, and Hoover have grown really close this offseason, how they hang out a lot, how they how they really like each other's company, how they're learning uh, and working with each other. Um, and, you know, he's another one that talked a lot about accountability and wanting everyone to, or needing, how this team needs everyone to be, pulling in the same direction. That was a common theme throughout all four of the guys that we talked to last week was they all talked about accountability. They all talked about needing everyone to be fully bought in and named Obiezor had a really interesting thing that he said. And it, it, it made me think back to something that Nick Saban said one time about getting the right guys on the bus. Mm-hmm. Nick Saban was at this, con- I don't remember what the context was. He was at a conference where he was, talking to coaches or something. He says, spring is about me trying to figure out how to get the right guys on the bus, identifying who the right guys are to be on the bus, what seats they need to be sitting in. And then it's also about getting the wrong guys off the bus. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's overlooked about Nick Saban's career is that he was so good 
at getting the wrong guys off the bus and making sure that everybody that was on the bus was pulling in the right direction and 100 percent bought in also easy to do when you know the guy that you're kicking off the bus is going to be replaced by another five-star guy to get true. on the bus but it, true it, it's a little but, bit it's tougher <clears throat> i think in, in a program like tcu and i think that might have been part of the issue last season is that when the wrong guys are still some of the most talented guys, you've got to make a tough decision as a coach. You know, like how much extra rope do you give a guy that might be better than the guy behind him when you're trying to win football games, keep your job and all those things. And and Saban was really, really great at that, but he also recruited at a level where it was really, really easy for him to say, just go, I don't care. I will replace you with someone equally as good or better. I think it's mm-hmm. harder to do when you're not, you know, a blue blood or, or a, a top 10, top 15 recruiting team annually. I, I hear what you're saying there. Uh, but to go back to what Namdi was saying last week, uh, what reminded me of that Saban speech was the fact that he said, we're, we, we're tr- still trying to figure out who really wants to be here. Yeah. He said something along the lines of, we're trying to get everybody on the bus, or not on the bus, but we're trying to get everybody in the same boat, is essentially what he said. Um, and he indicated that there are still maybe some guys on the team right now that aren't fully bought in, that have to decide whether or not this is where they want to be. And I found it really interesting that a player would come out into a press conference and say something like that because normally even if you know that there's some turmoil in the locker room guys will come out and they'll just say hey we're you know we're really we're, we're down right now but we're fighting we're all still bought in we're all still you know this that and the other and that is not essentially what named the was saying last week and so it'll be really interesting this spring to maybe see hey after spring ball after the spring game who are the guys that are going to hit that next portal window? Who are those guys that are going to look for opportunities elsewhere? Um, are maybe those some of the guys that Namdi Obiezer was referencing back in February? Well, I think it's going to be really interesting as this is kind of the next level of what the transfer portal does to programs, right? We all talk, we've talked about what it means for coaches. We've talked what it means for numbers. We've talked about what it means for player empowerment and movement. But now you're, you're looking at a guy like Namdi who was on a team that played for national championship. And was on a team that went five and seven and is now is ending his college career and starting to realize that when, I mean, like you've worked with teenagers, I work with teenagers, when you can always have one foot out the door wondering if the grass is going to be greener somewhere else, it's really, really hard to be fully bought in where you are. And I think that this is kind of that, that iteration now is that these guys know they can enter the portal and they know they can pursue greener pastures, whether or not it's going to work out remains to be seen, but you know, it's after every time that Kaz gets on their ass and yells at them, is a guy going, well, I'm just going to leave then. And I'm sure because some of these kids are immature and, you know, have been told how great they are since they were probably 12, 13, 14 years old. They've been probably the best athlete in their team. It's really hard to get everybody moving the same direction in a way that's even more unique than it was previously. So I love the fact that Nambi came out and said it. I think it's important that he said it. I think it's concerning that it was said, but I think kind of a very different philosophy now with the new coaching staff, but kind of putting it out there publicly, I think is a great lesson in accountability for some of these younger players who, who might be kind of, you know, towing the edge here. We saw some of those types of kids leave. We're going to probably see a good handful more leave in the spring, but uh, like to your point, like Saban said, it's about, what guys get on that bus to go to the airport for game one in a few months from now. And and if, if Namdi can say as a team leader and unquestioned leader of this program, Hey, you're with us or you're out. Like, and I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and air that to the public. I think that that says a lot about the type of leadership and accountability he's willing to shoulder himself. Yeah. Fully, fully agree with you there. And, and he's, uh, obviously talk, taking a, a larger leadership role, which I think is a nice thing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, another guy who is taking a, a little bit of a um, of a leadership role is Dom Williams, who is another guy we got to talk to. Uh, he was very fun fun to talk to last week. He he talked a lot about hating losing more than he likes yeah. winning. And so that he, he's like, last year was really hard. Uh, I hate losing more than I like winning. And he was like, I got frustrated when guys didn't feel the same way. And, um, so, you know, he, he talked about standards and he talked about wanting to get back on track, but he also talked about some of the young guys that, uh, he thought were going to do really well this year. And one guy that he got very excited to talk about was Travis Jackson. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so if we're looking for a defensive lineman to maybe step up and have a fun first year, 
uh, keep your eyes on Travis Jackson because he has the Dom Williams stamp of approval. That, and that's all I want in my life, man. It has been so fun. You know, we we got to interview Dom after his first ever college game the day before his 18th birthday. And his evolution in front of a microphone has been one of the most enjoyable things because he mm -hmm. still is this just like <clears throat> super positive, like kind of just lovable teddy bear type persona. He's super funny and he's really easygoing. But like you said, you can see that he's taking that step to being more of a leader and there's a little bit more of an edge to him now and there's a little bit more presence. It's not just, you know, him have like, I'll never forget chatting him up at the national championship game, like press press availability. And he was mm -hmm. just so happy to be there. And now he's like, no, like, like this is a kid who potentially has an NFL future and who, who wants to make sure he's got all the boxes checked, not just for his future, but to make sure that whenever his college career is over, that it ends the way that he wants it. And it's, it's really cool to see him. I mean, literally watch this guy grow up before our very eyes. Yeah. It's super cool. And one of the things that he and Namdi both talked about too, was Andy Avalos and what he has brought to the defensive side of the football already just in his short time here. And uh, Namdi was really interesting in what he said too. He's like, I wasn't sure how I was going to fit in this defense. And so mm -hmm. I went to him. And I said, what do you, where do you want me? And so they're moving him to the will linebacker. He said that he had a great conversation with Avalos, who was very transparent and said, this is what we need from you this year. This is what we expect from you this year. And I think that based on what both Namdi and Dom said about Avalos, he's taking a really direct approach to his players. And I think that maybe aligns with some of the stuff that we heard out of Boise State near the end of his yeah. time there about how direct he was and how direct is not an be. issue. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and um, I wonder if mm, I just wonder if that kind of approach is going to be good for these for the players on on the defensive side of the ball. Um, this hey, this is your responsibility. Mm -hmm. This is what we need from you. These are our expectations for you this year. And if you can't get it done, someone else is going to get an opportunity. Um, and you know, uh, this defense is going to, we've talked about this before when, uh, when Avalos was hired, the defense is going to be more aggressive. They're going to have more four down linemen. They're going to do a lot of really kind of uh, hybrid style things with a spur and a stud hybrid positions. And and they're going to get to the quarterback more. That was one thing Don Williams made sure to say, he's like, we're going to get to the quarterback more next year. Um, but I wonder if all of that's going to start from a better, more clear understanding of the expectations guys roles uh and then having more leadership from the players stepping up and speaking out when they need to well i think when you have a head coach that's a ceo a player's coach a very liked well-liked well-respected guy you need at least one of your coordinators to kind of be an a-hole and I, I mean, frankly, right? Like, and, and, you know, we kind of come from the, the past of the head coach kind of being an a-hole, right? When mm -hmm. it comes to that kind of a thing. Um, and so you had coordinators that were generally, you know, pretty well-liked, pretty easygoing. Um, and everything we've known about Joe Gillespie is what a well-liked, great guy, how much the players, father figure, but maybe they do need someone to get in there and kind of be a little bit tougher and be a little bit more aggressive and be a little bit more direct and, and that, bump that accountability up because the accountability was clearly what was missing from that team mm -hmm. last year, among some other things, talent-wise, whatever. But but the biggest thing I think everybody points to is that this was a team that did not look like they had high expectations put on them or had high expectations for themselves um, because a lot of the mistakes that they made were simple effort mistakes. Uh, they couldn't tackle. That's mm -hmm. an effort thing, right? So um, I, I think that you know, that, that this might be the change that's needed. And we'll see, we'll see if it works out, right? There's a lot to be decided, yeah. but from a scheme perspective, from a, I mean, I, I have, like I said, I didn't get to watch all the interviews straight through. I did a lot of skimming through. I did a lot of time, you know, on Twitter, kind of, kind of looking at what people were saying. And I cannot count how many times the word pressure was brought up. Um, it's obviously going to be a lot more aggressive. And if it's going to be more aggressive and take more risks, you need more accountability. And it sounds like Avalos has certainly installed that in the brief amount of time he's been on campus. Melissa, you know what else is really aggressive? How are you going to go with this one? The lineup that Hell's Half Acre Stadium Ooh, Goods is presenting okay. to my wallet yeah, right now. That's fair. That's good. Um, I don't know uh, if you... Well, you did see because we talked about it on the last episode. These custom bats, these yeah. custom TCU bats that are just begging me want, to buy I all three one. of them. The new, hats, the, new, the new hats. The new hats. Uh, for those of our YouTube viewers, this one right here yeah, uh, that is available. So at hell's half acre sg.com um the frogs man. hoodie the block frogs i oh. i got yeah the block frogs hoodie there are a couple other things that are coming soon 
that I think fans are going to be really excited about that. I got to like see a little preview of, of one thing uh, this weekend and Holy cow um, folks get over to hellshalfacresg.com and just spend some money. Like yeah. whatever you get is going to be quality. Whatever you get is going to be TCU oriented and it's going to make you really happy to have it um, because Hell's Half Acre is a brand that was created with Horn Frog fans in mind and a portion of all of the money they make goes directly to uh, making an impact for TCU student athletes. Uh, hellshalfacresg.com is a place to go to grab your game day polo, your game day hat, a koozie, some other stuff. Uh, whatever you need, Hell's Half Acre has it. They might even have like furniture and groceries and homes at this point. Yeah, they could. Make um, that so happen. just go over there and buy some stuff, and you're gonna love it, and you're gonna look like the biggest one frog fan on the planet. Over if, if just whatever you get from Hell's Half Acre. It's true. It's true. Melissa, um, men's basketball Whew. has been on quite the roller coaster ride throughout yeah. this Big Twelve season i guess we need to roll back two games because two games have happened since we've recorded um let us run very quickly through this texas tech game that happened midweek last week because the frogs lost 81 or sorry 82 to 81 they had a 10 point lead with about six and a half minutes left and things fell apart in those last six minutes by my observation and i have a, a reason why after this but they fell apart because texas tech did a great job of getting in the paint getting some baskets around the rim, drawing fouls, making their free throws. TCU's defense really struggled in those last seven minutes of that stretch, uh, while the offense missed a couple bunnies, yeah, missed cold. a couple free throws, still scored some points and, and looked good, especially in the last minute or two, but TCU really could not get a stop. And I have to say, in a game where you were already missing Ernest Uday and you had gotten 10 points and eight rebounds from Asam Mustafa, I'm curious to know more about why Assam didn't play in the last six minutes of that game mm -hmm. because it was cork. It was a little bit of Jacoby Coles and we know how much they like having Coles at the five from an offensive and a scoring perspective, but you also lose so much when you're trying to rebound and close out a game with defense when you go small ball like that. And it ended up really hurting the frogs last Tuesday. Yeah, it, it looked like they were trying to just score with Tech over the last few minutes instead of really trying to lock down defensively and get stops, which is very antithetical to the normal Jamie Dixon philosophy. Um, and, and like, listen, like Tech is really, it's a really hard place to win in Lubbock. The crowd was really into it, you know, like blah, 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 all of the reasons. But you cannot have a 10-point lead with less than seven minutes to go and lose the way that TCU did and, and just letting Texas Tech do it easily on the mm -hmm. offensive end of the floor. Um, yeah, and I think Mustafa, I think we've seen now at these last two games what he's capable of. He's a very different player than, than Uday is, but he's really veteran. He takes up a ton of space in a way that Cork and Coles just don't. He's a good rebounder and he's just a really smart player. Like I think he understands his role and he's not he's not gonna take rush shots. He's not going to try to make it about him. He's he's very content to do his job. Um and it was that was a huge reason why TC was able to run away from Cincy on Saturday that we'll get to. But mm -hmm. you, you said you had a philosophy, you had a reason. For, for why you think TCU kind of kind of fell, or did you kind of address that? That was it. It's almost it. Mustafa not playing. Okay, like, so that's where you like want to you you say want, that's a difference maker. Yeah, if you want a guy, and you just kind of talked about it, he takes up a lot of space, yeah. and he's a good rebounder, and he was doing all of those things throughout his season-high 19 minutes, which yeah. felt like it probably should have been closer to 25, I guess. Uh, do you think that for the, that first, that's, for the first 30 minutes of the game, do you think that that's just not Jamie Dixon just hasn't seen him in those late game situations enough to have the trust in him? Like he does probably in Cork and Coles. I don't know. I don't know. I, and I, I probably should have asked on Thursday when we had media availability with Dixon, I was, I was focused on other things and we got to talk to Ernest too. So I was really kind of more focused on that conversation than I was on why he didn't play in the final seven minutes. But I, it, it, it's it's one of those situations where it feels like there have been a couple of times this year where TCU goes away from something that's working to try mm -hmm. and get back to the core of what the vision is for the team rather than what the reality is mm -hmm. for the team. And it's cost them points. And in, in, on Tuesday in Lubbock, I think it cost them a win. Yeah. Um, now, what they did well in, in kind of the inverse of that 
was on Saturday where Cincinnati let TCU run. And uh, in those final 10 minutes of the game where TCU could either let what happened Tuesday happen again or continue the trend of what had been working all day and pull away, they did the latter of those two things. They went on a nice little eight to nothing run to to make their lead, to turn their 12 point lead into a 20 point lead. They did it with the fast break. They were aggressive on defense. They were forcing turnovers. They were crashing. They beat Cincinnati on the boards, which for folks who maybe haven't watched a ton of Cincinnati basketball this year, they're average. Uh, they're averaging nine more rebounds per game than their opponent. And they're averaging over 40 rebounds per game. Those are both top 10 stats in the country. They're leading the Big 12 in both of those stats, and TCU out-rebounded them without Ernest Uday on Saturday afternoon for an 18-point win. And it, it was nice to maybe see that TCU kind of learned its lesson in closing out games where it's like, hey, when it gets down to it, we're just going to do what we do best, and that's we're going to run you out of the freaking gym. Maybe Cincinnati's more susceptible to that than some other Big 12 teams, but it was nice to see TCU assert themselves in that way when they really just needed to close out a home win. Yeah, it beat the brakes off a bit. Like, Cincinnati's yeah. not a bad team, but a team that TCU is better than. And yeah, I completely agree. Um, I was I was driving back from Reno from the coaching clinic I was speaking at, and I was I was watching um, St. Francis soccer win a section championship. Heck yeah! Heck yes, a section title. They play in the NorCal's starting on Tuesday. Go Trubies! A lot of flag football players on that soccer team. Just saying. Um, and everybody was, was wondering. Everybody was wondering. was wondering, Melissa, what would happen if the Trubies didn't win. Yeah, and you I know guess what? We'll never They're know. still wondering. They're still wondering. Um, I guess we'll never know. So I was watching that on the NFHS feed. I was listening to the TCU basketball game on the radio, uh, and I was really glad it worked out like that because I got to hear Brian Estridge's uh, interview with Mustafa after the game. And Brian, Brian, and I, I just can't remember who uh, who the other guy that was on the broadcast with was. Colin Boddicker. Oh, it was Colin. Yeah, it was Colin. Um, uh, so they were going back and forth the final couple minutes trying to figure out who Mustafa reminds him of, like what his player comp was. And I texted Brian. He did not text me back. I'm fine. I'm not upset about it, Brian. It's totally like I'm over it. Like I've forgiven you. It's We're moving on. Uh, Dewan Blair is the mm. guy that an undersized center that should probably be more of a power forward but doesn't really have the power forward offensive skill set. But a guy who like it, it like – Blair didn't have ACL, so he didn't really leave the ground much. Mustafa has his, as far as I know, but does not leave the ground a whole lot. Super, super crafty around the rim. You know, understands leverage, how to use his body. I thought it was a perfect player. Also, Blair played for Dixon at Pitt, right? Like, this is... So, I really thought it was the perfect comp. Apparently, Eschridge disagreed with me. Again, totally over it. I'm not taking it personally. Leave me on red, Brian. Like, I'm cool. Uh, but, I'm clipping but, this and tagging him yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, you absolutely should. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I... <laughs> But I thought I thought that was a good comp of what. Now you know, obviously Blair was like a. I think he was an All American, and he was a super elite talent. That's not Mustafa's role or his job at TCU. But I think that there's a lot of that same kind of veteran craftiness that a guy who isn't the biggest guy but understands how to play a little bit above his size and really mm-hmm. use his body to create space. And it, it looks like Uday may maybe back Monday potentially for the Baylor game. But if he's not, I think that he's certainly earned the trust of Jamie Dixon. Where if they are in a late game situation. Again, I, I think Jamie would absolutely trust him um, down the stretch in a tight contest. Yeah, I agree. I So on Ernest Uday, we we learned on Thursday that... Uh, so I know that he had tests done on Monday to kind of see what the extent of the injury was. It, there was no structural damage. There's no tendon issue, no muscle issue, no anything like that, which is really, really good. Um, and, and Dixon said on Thursday that he's getting a lot better. It's really just about... Uh, the discomfort and and how do you kind of work your way through that? Um, and it was obviously too painful for for Ernest to play on Saturday. Maybe two more days uh, will get him in a position with the way that he's been improving to be able to give TCU some minutes on Monday night against Baylor. I do think that they're going to need him a yeah. little bit, especially to play against Eve's Missy, because that dude is a monster, even though he's a true freshman, he's been really, really good the last few weeks. Uh, had a couple mistakes in, in overtime that kind of let the game against Houston get away from him, but um, is a fantastic center and gave TCU a ton of problems in their first matchup. So you, you want to be at full strength at, yeah. at the five for that game on Monday night. Um, but here's why I think uh, the Cincinnati game 
was so good for TCU from a national standpoint. Because what I don't think people understand is how much margin of victory plays into the net rankings. And TCU has consistently been like 35 to 42 in the net rankings all year. They were 37 going into Saturday and they jumped seven spots to number 30 Hmm. with one win over a team that now has a five and nine big 12 record Hmm. that is now 16 and 11 on the season. And you're thinking, Oh my gosh, but they beat Houston and they didn't jump by that much. They'd beat, you know, Baylor in triple overtime. They didn't jump by that much. They beat tech at home. They didn't. It's because those were single digit wins. This was an 18 point win over a conference opponent. I think it counts as a quad two win because it was at home. Um, And so they jumped a good amount in the net rankings. They also jumped up to 25 in Ken Palm from, I believe, 32. And so what this win has done for TCU on the national level from from a rankings and numbers perspective is it puts them more in the conversation to get off of that eight and nine line, which is going to be so important if TCU wants to make a good push in the tournament a month from now. Because you don't don't want this team running into UConn. Yeah, you really do not. Um, it also like I, I love something the Big Twelve has introduced this season, and it's the if the season ended today bracket graphics for the mm-hmm. for the, both the men's and the women's basketball tournaments. That win also because of some other fortuitous things that happened around the conference regarding TCU jumped them to a four seed, giving them a buy in double the Big Twelve, a double buy, yeah, in the in the yeah. Big Twelve conference tournament, um, which would be massive for this team, especially as they get a little bit banged up and try to get guys back fully healthy. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think that, you know, there's not a lot of basketball left. There's there's only two games remaining, right? But, like, at the same time, um, uh, there's a lot on the line. And yes. there's four games remaining, right? Four games, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, four. there's a lot, a lot on the line for this team. Um, when it comes to not just their national seeding, but their but their league seeding, their conference seeding, because your national seed, if you win a couple of games in that tournament, and your TCU, a team that's kind of right on that edge of being anywhere from probably like a six to an eleven, depending on what happens the next two weeks, yeah. uh, it, it's if they could get that double by and finish fourth in the conference, that's going to go a long way to perception on a national level. I fully agree. It starts Monday night with Baylor. And there's a secondary reason that you mentioned already why that game is so important. TCU is tied for the fourth best conference record right now at eight and six with Baylor. And so getting that second win over the Bears, holding the the true head-to-head card in that Mm -hmm. two-game series will go a long way to clinching that double bye. Obviously, you've still got to go to West Virginia and win, which TCU has never done. You've got to go... Uh, you've got to go to BYU, who is uh, a you know legit top thirty team in the country. Yeah. Twenty can shoot the, still ranked. Can, yeah. can shoot the lights out of the ball. Um, and TCU's perimeter defense has been suspicious at times, so you know keep an eye on that. Um, and then you you host a, a Central Florida team that went on the road and beat Texas earlier yeah. this year. They haven't been great on the road outside of that game, but they just beat Texas Tech last week, and that's part of the reason TCU's in position to have a four seed. Um, and so you've got to get through these last four games. You have to do it probably at least two and two, ideally three and one, if not four and zero, oh, uh, to really set yourself up for a good seed in the tournament and that double buy in the Big Twelve. Which means that hey, you win one game in the Big Twelve, you're in the semifinals. Yeah. Right. Win two games, you're in the title game. Like that is such a huge, such a huge boon to get that double that double buy versus having to start on Tuesday and win five games in five days to win the big 12 tournament. Well, and you're also, you know, you've never won in Morgantown. You want to break that streak, but you've also never finished above 500 in big 12 play. And that mm-hmm. is sitting right there for the Horn Frogs. It is. Yep. I mean, they're eight and six with four games remaining two games at home. Uh, it, it is so within reason for them to get to that 10 win mark in the conference and 10 wins in that, in this conference this year would be uh, super significant for perception nationally. So yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot on the line these last four games. Um, and, and ultimately at the end of the day, you really just want to make sure you're playing your best basketball. And we've seen it with this TCU team when they are playing their best basketball, they can play with anybody in this league. Mm-hmm. So if they're playing at a, at a high level, uh, two and two to me is the, the baseline expectation and three and one is not, whatsoever out of out of the rebel possibility yeah let's let's shift over to the women though because uh sedona prince came back yeah 
Madison Connor is back. Madison Sedona Connor Brins is back. Came back. Uh, Sedona broke her finger in the first 30 seconds of the game against Baylor in early January. She's missed the last 11 games played, 13 games if you count the two that were forfeited earlier this season as well. Um, I saw her in the gym on Thursday when we were doing media availability with, with Dixon and, and Mostafa. Um, the the women's team was wrapping up practice and she was getting up extra shots with Mark Campbell um, getting ready for Saturday's game. That's kind of how I, I posted this on the board over at Hornfrog Blitz on Thursday afternoon. I was like, hey, I wouldn't be surprised if Sedona was playing on Saturday because I just saw her working out. And not only did I see her working out, which she's been doing obviously this whole time, but she and Campbell were talking about strategically, hey, if we're going to run this set, that would be a really good opportunity for maybe me to back cut this, that, and the other. Some of, some of the X's and O's stuff that you really talk to a player about when they're getting ready to play in a yeah. game versus just getting an extra workout in to try and get back into shape. So um, it was really great to see her out on the court. She had 13 points, six rebounds. We're not going to talk about the seven turnovers. Yeah, I, little a little rust there. little rust. But the biggest thing is, is that TCU women's basketball has now won three games in a row. They're sitting there at five and eleven in the conference. They probably need to make a big deep run. We talked about this last week. They got to make a big run in the tournament to, or in the Big Twelve tournament, to maybe have hopes at at getting in the NCAA tournament. But the reality is, is what kind of momentum can this give you as a program to have what happened this year happen, mm-hmm. and then you finish? First of all. No matter what, they could lose both of these last regular season games. They have 500% more wins in conference play than they did a year ago. And you have all your, uh, the majority of your folks back healthy now to, to really challenge uh, to make a run in the, in the Big 12 tournament. I just think it's a really impressive uh, last couple of weeks for, for TCU women's basketball. And it could have, it, it would have been really easy for Sedona Prince because she's freaking Sedona Prince yeah. to have just said, you know, I'm good. Like team's probably not making the tournament. Jaden Owens got hurt. Madison Connor got hurt. All these other girls got hurt. Yeah. I'm going to be in the gonna, WNBA think, in a couple of months. Yeah. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit this one out. She came back. She worked her ass off. She got ready. She had multiple surgeries on her finger. She rehabbed from all of them to come back and play. And I think that that does a lot for a team when one of your leaders and best players is bought yeah. in enough to say, hey, the season isn't going the way we wanted it to, but I'm still working to come back and be a part of this thing. Uh, that's huge. That's huge. I think that's a big uh, signal of what Sedona Prince's character is overall. Well, and, and, you know, it's not that long ago that we look back to what an NIT run did to launch TCU men's basketball. Sedona Brintz comes back, Madison Connor, you know, it looked a little, she, she didn't have her best game that TC got away with it because they got Prince back. But if they, if those two players are healthy and playing TC basketball can hundred percent win a women's NIT championship. Mm-hmm. They can a hundred percent. If they, if they get back healthy and they can keep everybody else healthy, this team can make a deep run in the women's yeah. NIT. So I think that if they can, if they can keep winning now and they've got, you know, a couple games left, it's, it's not going to be easy for them by any stretch. And they've got to go, uh, They've got Texas Tech at home. That's a definitely a winnable game. And then they go um, to West Virginia as well, which is going to be a tough one for them. They, they got pretty pretty rolled by by the Mountaineers um, a little bit earlier this season, but not not at full strength. And mm-hmm. they're at least closer to that. So I, I think that, that they could easily finish the regular season on a, on a five-game win streak or with a four-and-one kind of down the stretch. If they can win one or two games in the Big 12 tournament, I think they could absolutely earn a WNIT bid because they're one of the best sport stories in sports at that point, right? Like the, everything that they've overcome, the momentum that they build, the way that they're playing right now. I, I don't think that them playing in the postseason is out of the realm of possibility, but they certainly need to string together a few more wins to make that happen. Absolutely. They do. Absolutely. They do. You know, who keeps stringing together wins? Uh, Melissa? I knew I, I, I was saying it in my head and I almost said it, but then I was like, I just finished talking. So I'm going to, I'm going to let Jamie take the segue here. My, you're, I mean, you're such. That was like, that was like, the opening tip off of the TCU Cincy game. Yeah, just an easy dunk. I, I uh, you it were over. you Emmanuel Miller just taking the tip, throwing it straight to Micah Peavy for the slam yeah. dunk. Like that was yeah. that was perfect teamwork right there. Home field apparel, folks. Yeah, is on quite the streak. 
with home field apparel, you're going to get some of the softest t-shirts and hoodies in the game and not just for TCU. I am not wearing it currently because it's like 85 degrees in Texas now, but my big sky hoodie is one of my favorite pieces of clothing that I own. You guys see me wearing it on this show more often than not all the time. And, um, that's because it is so incredibly soft and so incredibly comfortable. It fits me perfectly. Um, if you head over to homefieldapparel.com, you can use our code frogs and 15 that's frogs. I N one five to get 15% off your first purchase, 10% off of your subsequent purchases for all of the TCU gear that you can find on homefieldapparel.com. That is hoodies. That is t-shirts. That is a dad hat. Now mm-hmm. that is, that is the frog ball raglan tee that the if you fr- don't yes. own, you need to have for baseball season. It is baseball season. Go get it right now. You've got joggers. If you live somewhere where it's cold or you crank that AC at night, you can go get those as well. They've got a wonderful selection of TCU gear over there at homefieldapparel.com. That's frogs in 15. That'll get you 15% off your first purchase and 10% off every purchase after that. Go to homefieldapparel.com. Make it happen. Um, and after you pick up that, that raglan tea. Make sure you head out to Lupton Stadium because, who boy, frog ball is cooking, Jamie. I, I watched just about every inning of all three games this weekend. Yes. Uh, you watched every inning of all three games this, this yes. weekend. Um, I, uh, like, I, I, mm, my hopes are through the roof right now. This, this team, there's, I, I'm still a little concerned about the starting pitching. But I cannot remember a TCU baseball team that could flat out rake like this team has. And they've done it mm-hmm. all at home. And even though Lupton is a little bit friendlier of a hitter's park now with the bat- with the batting eye, it's still really hard to smoke the ball around that stadium. And, oh, my God, did they do it again this weekend without the benefit of the wind blowing out. Yeah, there were, there were, there were some baseballs that were incredibly well hit this weekend that did not make it out of the ball. Yeah. And, yeah. um, for for UCLA and for TCU. Um, but some fun facts about this weekend. So TCU sweeps the top 20 opponent in number 20, UCLA, to get to 7-0 on the season. That's the longest winning streak to open the season since TCU baseball went 9-0 in 1994. <laughs> so we're talking about a 30-year wow. stretch where TCU has not had this good of a start to a season. Um, which is so impressive considering where TCU baseball has been yeah. since Jim Schlossnagel got here about 20 years ago. And who they um, played these seven games. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a team that won 42 games last year in Florida Gulf Coast, a Texas State team that I don't think people appreciate as being as good as they were. They won 47 games last yeah. year, and they were a win away from a Super Regional. Um, and then, yeah, a UCLA team that is incredibly young but very talented. Mm-hmm. UCLA traveled with 18 freshmen. Wow. This weekend, they used pretty much all of them to try and find a lineup. John Savage, their head coach, I think, is really kind of working through where he wants some of these guys to play and in what order he wants them to mm-hmm. hit. Because we saw pretty varied lineups through all three games, a lot of late game pinch hitting, uh, especially on Friday and oh Saturday God. in those two close yeah. games. Felt like they played. Um, Was there anybody left that had gotten on the field by Saturday? There were a handful of games. There were a handful of guys. Yeah, but um, it was it was interesting because my my thought, and I think I said this on last week's episode, was TCU just needs to get in there this weekend and get two of three. Mm -hmm. Well, they got all three, which was great. But how they got all three, I think, (laughs) speaks to the potential of this team moving forward first and foremost you won a game on friday night where you had to manufacture a few runs you got a little bit of pop and power but you had to manufacture some runs you had to protect a very slim lead for the majority of the game and then you had to go to your closer on friday night for a six out Mm -hmm. safe Mm -hmm. and ben abel gave you 31 pitches of brilliance to slam the door on ucla including a 14-pitch at bat to a guy named Cameron Kim, who is a true freshman, true freshman, yeah. part of this, part of the number one overall recruiting class that UCLA hauled in last year. Um, fouled off nine pitches in a row. And when Abel talked to us after that game, you know, I kind of asked him what his approach was as that at bat was continuing to go. And he said, you know, guys in that situation tend to think like, I've got to overthrow something here. 
They, I've got to, I've just got to get this guy out. I got, and then they go in and they overthrow. He goes, I was just trying to locate my pitches. He's like, I trust my stuff. And I know that if I put it in the spot, I want to put it in, it's going to be really hard for them to hit. And lo and behold, Cameron Kim flew out to left field. Yeah. You know, he didn't, I mean, he, he ate into the pitch count, which made Ben Abelt unavailable on Saturday, but he got it. He did the job. Abelt did yeah. the job. He got the out, uh, slammed the door, got that first win Saturday. In the same inning, you had a push bunt score a run off the bat of Logan Maxwell, and you had a 108 mile an hour, 406 foot home run off the bat of Curtis Byrne in the span of about six minutes. Yeah. And that speaks in and of itself to the diversity of this offense and the, the ways in which they can score runs. If the wind had been blowing out this weekend, I think Curtis Byrne's home run would still be going. Yeah. He yeah. hit that ball as hard as I've seen anyone hit a baseball in a long time. Um, and it was a, it was a delight to see that home run put them up six to one. Uh, the bullpen gave up a pair of runs uh, at the back end of another very good uh, appearance from Braden Sloan. Um, and then with Ben Abel unavailable and a three run lead in the ninth, Kirk Sarlos went to chase Hoover <laughs> and a guy who's never really been in that kind of a situation in college yet. And he just went out and got three outs. And yeah. it was really nice to see another kid kind of step up in a late inning, high leverage situation. Uh, because now you're thinking, oh man, if Ben has to go really long on a night, maybe we have another arm that we can really trust to step in in the ninth inning and figure some things out for us. And then on Sunday, that was <laughs> the just the craziest uh, first inning I've ever seen in my like one of the craziest first innings. Yeah, the momentum swing in the first inning was nuts. And then TCU got so obviously for those that didn't watch the game on Sunday, Zach Morris, TCU Sunday starter. Struggled with some of the same control issues in the first inning that he did in his first start last week against Florida Gulf Coast. He walked two two batters, those sandwiched an error from Brody Green, which loaded the bases with no outs. He settled down, he got a strikeout, and then got a ground ball double play to get out of the inning and keep UCLA from scoring a run. And after that, it was just like TCU decided, we're done with you now. Yeah. And they went out and they scored five runs in the bottom of the first. Peyton Chatagnier led off with the solo home run, his third of the year. Uh, they had RBIs from Curtis Byrne and Carson Bowen, and who hit the that, the, the hardest home run I saw hit since Friday he, night. He Good crushed Lord. a home run in the sixth inning as well. The, 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 I mean, the Frogs scored five runs in two different innings. They run rule UCLA to finish the game in seven, get out of there a little bit early. Um, said it's it's fine. You can catch an earlier flight back to LA yeah. now, and and sit here at seven and zero, already ranked fifth in the country. And you look around the country, Melissa Wake Forest lost a game in the midweek. LSU lost a game to Stony Brook this week. Vandy dropped a game to Gonzaga yeah. this weekend. Um, Arkansas lost a game. They they also won an incredible what a, baseball game. What but a they lost ballsy a game. Sa- like bunt though. What a ballsy uh, yes. bunt by oh. Oklahoma State in the bottom of the fourth. So good, man. I so love good. that. So good. So good. Um, and you know, Florida has already lost a game this year to St. John's, and so you're sitting there as a TCU fan, and you're like, wow. This is one of the only undefeated, you know, top ten programs in the country right now. Where are they going to be ranked on Monday? I don't, I don't think. I don't think it's going to be one. It's not. Yeah, gonna I be don't one. want number one. I, I would not it. be. I would not be surprised to see Wake Forest, Arkansas, TCU, yeah. one, two, and three. I think. I think week. three is fine. I. I would like to be in the top five. I don't want to be in the top two right now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. It's, it's a tough schedule ahead. There's a lot of baseball left to play. Let's not start. Got a lot of young guys. Yeah. A lot of transfers. Let's not. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. I am perfectly content. Being able to say they don't believe in us. Wow, they only think we're the number three team in the nation. The disrespect. <laughs> like, let's get some bulletin board material. Um, what? So you talked about the pitchers and the pitching depth and guys that stepped in. I also want to talk about the lineup. Um, Peyton Tolley, we've, we've discussed, just has not quite gotten in sync this year. What a luxury for Kirk Sarlos to be able to go to Jack Basir and see him just hit the cover off the ball. For a couple of games, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we've seen uh, it, it's it's much advertised that uh, right field is, is a question with Luke Boyers. He's struggled at the plate so far this season. So, oh, why don't we just throw in a, another freshman in Sam Myers and have him have an excellent game as well? Like to be able to give guys that might just need a game like a get right game or a mental break or, or whatever else or a physical break, the flexibility to be able to take guys off the bench, put them into the lineup and not just see them play good defense, mm-hmm. but like to do their jobs defensively, but also to excel offensively. I mean, 
it, it doesn't matter what this lineup looks like. It doesn't seem to matter who's in it. One through nine, you have to be really, really careful how you pitch the Horn Frogs. And that is, as the pitching starts to get itself together and, and looks a little bit better, hopefully week in and week out, the fact that you know this team is very consistently going to put five, six, seven, eight runs on the board has got to be a big big source of confidence for those pitchers. Yeah, uh, this is this is a really good pitching staff that UCLA has too, especially yeah. the starting three. I think what UCLA's downfall is with their starting rotation though, is that all three guys are right-handed and have mm-hmm. similar stuff. Mm-hmm. And so by Sunday, you're like, oh yeah, I've seen this 92 mile an hour fastball with a little bit of action on it. I know what this curveball is going to look like. I know what this changeup is going to look like. And so TCU barreled up UCLA's starting pitching pretty nicely on uh, Sunday to the tune of 13 hits and eight earned runs yeah. in five innings. I was surprised that Barnett made it five innings, frankly, with yeah. the way things started. Um, so good on him to at least battle it out and get through five. But uh, that was a very impressive front three from UCLA that TCU kind Smoked. of beat up all yeah. weekend. And so that gives you a lot of hope moving into another big weekend or another big week, really, where you host a Washington State team that I didn't see the result from today. We're recording this on Sunday, but they were five and one entering Sunday, uh, a nice little team. You're talking about an Arizona team that beat kind of everybody's, not everybody's, but a lot of national analysts really were high on Northeastern coming into this year. A couple polls had them ranked and Arizona took two out of three from them to open the season. Um, Washington so State got, beat Kansas today. So yeah. And they've got a top 25. Well, uh, Kentucky played Kansas today. I don't know. Kentucky. Uh, beat Kansas oh, that's today. Sunday. Yeah. That, that score is not posted. The, the okay. today's score. It might still, I don't know. Yeah, but anyways, yeah. Washington State's great. Uh, Arizona's really good, and then you go to Arlington, where you're going to play USC twice and Arizona State once, uh, and you're going to watch Texas A&M play baseball as well. Um, and I, I, I think that this is a, a really good spot for TCU baseball to be in after week two. I mean, you're talking about, and I said this last week on the pod too. This is not a football style schedule where you have to you have to figure things out right at the beginning of the season or your season's probably not going to go the way you want it to baseball is a long long season um and for tcu to be playing as well as they are in week two doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to sustain throughout the whole year but it gives you a nice understanding of what the potential of this team is right out of the gate and man i mean yeah. Just so, so impressive. Uh, I will say, too, uh, Sarlos was asked about Peyton Tolley after Sunday's game. He did not play Saturday. He did not play Sunday, as you mentioned. Uh, there is no injury thing there. It is simply he's a little out of sorts, is what um, Sarlos said at the plate. And they just want to help him get a little bit of a breather early on. They're also trying to navigate having a legitimate yeah. two-way player for the first time. And there's no, I think, right way to do that. So they're they're trying to figure it all out with him and we're probably going to see him play on Tuesday. I would really like to see him be hit for on Fridays. I'd I'd like to see on days he's pitching. I'd like to see Basir or whoever else fill that DH spot. And because again, he's, he's, he looked better on Friday night, but he's still not, I think to the level I expect him to be mid season. And so letting him just focus on one thing. And that way, mm-hmm. if he has a bad outing Friday, you know, like I, I just, I, I think that would be, and also like, we got to get some of these other guys in the lineup. Like it's going to be yeah. really hard to keep Basir and, and Myers and whoever else out of the lineup. So that's, that's one way, but Hey, I mean, they, they pay Kirk the big bucks for a reason. Um, you know, we talk about that depth. Um, you, you mentioned the schedule ahead. I think it's like six games in eight days, and five of them are against Power Five opponents. Um, so, and, and Washington's been good. Washington State's been good. Arizona's been, obviously has been good, and then the weekend series. USC is not very good, but still going to be. There's still going to have you. a lot of depth. They can. They be, can yeah. beat you. Yeah. Um, so I, I think being able to give guys like Tolly and, and some of these other guys some early rest um, to know that you can make defensive replacements for guys late in games, um, the flexibility that they have in this lineup is going to be huge when you have to play that many games in that many days. Um, and, and the pitchers getting an opportunity to play in those mm-hmm. kind of high leverage situations when you know you're going to have to use a ton of arms over the next week and a half, I, I think it's a huge deal. And and then your reward for surviving that schedule is your first big 12 series of the year. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, uh, some guys out of the bullpen. Braden Sloan was nails. Zach Coyer was nails. Andrew Mosiello looked fantastic in his mm-hmm. one inning of work great. on Sunday. Caden Parker gave up a home run, but settled in really nicely after that to pitch a, another scoreless inning in a half or so. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, what we saw this weekend was kind of what you and I were talking about after the first weekend, which is it'll it'll get figured out. It'll get settled. Yeah. These guys are going to learn what their roles are. They're going to earn what their roles are. And and we'll see some improvement from week to week. And we saw pretty much all of that to a T. Is there still room from gro- for growth? Absolutely. I, I, I liked that TCU starters ate a few more innings mm-hmm. this weekend, but I don't think they, they ate enough yeah, quite yet. You know, deeper. I think I think you really want guys to get into the sixth inning, if not the seventh inning, on a regular basis. Um, which if you think about TCU starting pitching, getting into the sixth and seventh, then holy cow, look at the the whole host of options Kirk Sarlos has on any given day in the seventh, eighth, and ninth. And um, I think it just makes you really strong when, you're, when your starters are consistently going deep into games. And who, yeah, I was go going to ask you, who's, who's your guest? Who gets to start Wednesday night? That's a good question. And I asked Kirk about it on Sunday and he laughed at me like he always does when I ask him about starting pitching. I feel like I'm obligated to do that at this point. Kirk, if you're listening, I'm not going to stop asking you about your starters, but you can continue to laugh at me. It doesn't hurt my feelings that much anymore. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ben Hampton's obviously going to start on Tuesday. I would say we probably see Louie. Louis Rodriguez get uh, the start on Wednesday. He didn't didn't pitch at all this weekend. Yeah, didn't pitch this weekend. Um, Another name that has not seen time yet this year is Storm Heierholzer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder if maybe he gets a little bit of run on Wednesday as you try to figure out who are we going to use out of the bullpen in the midweek? Who are we going to really need to preserve for Friday night at the very least? Um, Based on he, how well he's pitched this season, do you think Coyer gets a gets an opportunity to get the start or do you think you save him for the weekend? I don't know. I mean, that's that's a good, a good question. Uh, he pitched in two straight games this weekend he only threw 11 pitches on friday and i'm going to do some quick googling while i vamp to see how many pitches he threw on saturday because he went uh, a decent length of time i think he went a little over one inning he in fact went 1.1 innings and threw 19 pitches so he only threw 30 pitches over the weekend so i mean you're, you're talking about realistically he could probably start on wednesday and maybe you just do uh, kind of a bullpen game on Wednesday too to give everybody two, three innings of work um, and get some guys some experience that haven't had much yet. Um, but I also think that getting a win, I mean, Sarlos talks all the time about how important these midweek games are from yeah. an RPI perspective. And I don't know if you bullpen game a midweek game against Arizona. Yeah. Like I, I there are some other teams in the midweek where maybe you can throw throw a bullpen game together. I just don't know if Wednesday yeah. is that one. And so yeah. I think Louie probably makes the most sense because I think, I mean, they stretched Coyer out, Coyer out ahead of the season, right? Like they had him, was he one of the guys they stretched out yeah. as potential? So, so he could theoretically go four or five, but he's been so good out of the bullpen. I don't know that you want to burn him out and then maybe mm-hmm. only get to use him one time over the weekend when you've needed him twice the first two weekends of the season. Um, yeah. After those. So I, I, I'd like to see Louie get the start, but I also, I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I imagine Tolley's going to get a lot of leash. Klecker's going to get as much leash as he wants. I, I think Morris still is, is rounding into form as that Sunday guy. I would imagine that that Sunday job could still be very mm-hmm. competed for. And so that's an opportunity for maybe someone like Zach or, or Louie to go out on Wednesday and maybe show that they could potentially be that, you know, in the mix for a weekend starter job. But you also got to give Morris a ton of credit. I mean, what he did on Sunday – he, that he's, he's not he's, afraid. He, he's not he's, afraid. <laughs> he had, he had a rough first inning and yeah. then he went out in the second after that happened and he, he retired the side in order. Yeah. Um, you know, they, I mean, they got a couple runs back, uh, on him later in the game, but he, he looked good. much better. His fastball still looks, he struggled to locate the fastball. He located his changeup really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that he's coming along at a good rate and, I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't bail on him. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's no, no reason to do that. No reason yeah. to shuffle anything up um, because I think he's given you enough. Yeah. And if he improves in week three, like he did in week two, I mean, we're talking about a guy that's probably pitching into the sixth or seventh yeah. inning and striking out seven or eight guys. I mean, he struck out five guys today. He walked four, but I mean, the stuff is there with yeah. him. The stuff is there. 
Um, also, shout out, I didn't mention him yet. Kyle Ayers on Saturday night mm -hmm. was the first guy out of the bullpen, and all he did was come in and throw 98 miles an hour. Yeah. That is something that TCU has had in spurts, but to have a guy who you can just come in and say, oh, by the way, Klecker's throwing 91 today, maybe 92, and then the next guy you see is throwing almost 100, yeah. that is a wildly different kind of ball to hit. And I think that's also some of the reason that UCLA struggled out of the bullpen this week is like everybody seemed to have similar stuff. Mm -hmm. Cody Del Vecchio was like the one guy out of their bullpen who he was hitting mid 90s, 96 ish. His stuff had a lot of movement on it. TCU really struggled with that, especially on Saturday. He struck out like five through six innings. And uh, when you have guys who offer a little bit of a different arsenal, it makes it that much more difficult for a guy to adjust, especially in game. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe that's where some of, because like guy to guy, UCLA has got the dudes, they've got the arms, they've got the bats, but they just kind of go out there and pitch and they kind of go out there and hit. And it doesn't seem cohesive quite yet mm -hmm. for them. I will say this last thing on UCLA, because we're already over an hour and I know we want to wrap up. I had the opportunity to sit next to Mike Rooney all weekend long. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike Rooney of D1 Baseball fame, one of, by in my estimation, the premier kind of national analysts for college baseball over the last, you know, however long he's been doing this thing. Um, and we were talking about this UCLA team this afternoon as the game was going on. And it, he, he suggested that there's a possibility that this UCLA team could do something similar to what TCU did mm. last year, where you had a lot of young pieces a lot of undetermined roles earlier in the year. You know, Sarlos last year was searching for a rotation, searching for some guys to, to hit in, the, in certain orders. Um, they had obviously kind of the older defensive stalwarts and Braden Taylor and Elijah Nunez. UCLA has really veteran guys up the middle on their infield. Um, but it just, it took a while for all those pieces to fall into the right place. And, I wonder if that's going to happen for UCLA this season. I think it could. Um, I would not be. Yeah. I would not be surprised at all if they're hosting so, a regional. So they're gonna they're gonna fall out of the rankings this week because they got swept, and that's what happens when you're a twenty-ish team and you and you get swept. But I wouldn't be surprised to see them hop back in there sooner rather than later, and and if not host, probably be a two seed somewhere and, and give some give somebody fits in their in their own regional. So uh, it'll be interesting to, to kind of follow along with UCLA because that would be a. It'd be a nice feather in the cap yeah. if UCLA turns out to be pretty stinking good, which I think everyone's consensus is is that they're going to be. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, at the end of the day, TCU is is seven and zero, and they've got a lot of opportunity to pad their resume here before they start conference play. Um, mm -hmm. This week is going to be huge. Um, you can you can very easily be you know eight and eight and four or you know nine and three by the end of it, but I fully expect for them to continue to to show that they can win games in a lot of different ways um, and, and against some really quality opponents to go out and, and take care of business again. So it's going to be fun. I'm excited for the Globe Live series. That's always just a great atmosphere and venue um, and, and to just keep playing quality competition. That's it's, it's a stark departure from the way some other TCU coaches schedule, not that we're going to call anybody out. Um, and it's a lot of fun for fans, even if it is very, very stressful. It's, it's, it's pretty cool to think how battle tested this team will be before they play a big 12 series. Here's the thing. If they, so they've already swept UCLA. Say just hypothetically, they win the next five. <laughs> are they, are, are they packed? Are they just packed 12 champions at that point? Yeah, I guess so. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think mean, they, I think they have to give them the Pac-12 crown if they beat UCLA, Arizona, um, and Washington. I guess they, they probably think, need to get uh, Oregon state somewhere in there. Cause that's, that's yeah. kind of your premier. I mean, that's, that's the team to premier beat, baseball team. Yeah. Oregon State's the team to beat. Well, Melissa, this has been quite the treat. Uh, recording a day early because of the craziness of this week's schedule for TCU Athletics. But this has been the Frogs Insider Podcast. She is Melissa Freebwasser. I am Jamie Plunkett. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can go wherever you get your podcasts and find our show. If you search Republic of Football Network, you will get the entire series of shows in one feed. If you just want Frogs Insider, search Frogs Insider and make sure that you leave a rating and a review hit subscribe on the YouTube channel as well. And follow us on socials. She's at the coach, Melissa, and I am at frog preacher, Melissa, I guess we'll talk to him next time. Go frogs, go frogs.